Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you on this cold and uh, rainy day. I'm grateful that you guys brave the weather, and I'm grateful for our, that parking lot team and our greeters that are outside in the middle of all this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hey, if you're just joining us, uh, we are in a study of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, and this is an ancient Jewish story about how God, how Yahweh, brought the 12 tribes of Israel together to be a nation under a king. And God is showing us in these Old Testament stories how we can resist the rip currents of our uh, do-whatever-seems-right-to-you culture that we live in today. We'll come back to that idea a little bit later on in the message. But uh, from Genesis all the way through 1 Samuel, Yahweh has shown himself to be Israel's king uh, over and over and over again with miraculous works of power through providing uh, his people with food and water in their wilderness wanderings through great military victories as they entered into the land that was promised to Abraham, their ancestor. Over and over again, Yahweh has demonstrated that he was king of Israel. But the current, uh, the cultural currents of the surrounding nations kept pulling Israel away from wholehearted devotion to God. And, and last year this time, we studied through the book of Judges, which was one cycle after another of God providing for and protecting his people. But time and time again, they did what was right in their eyes rather than in God's eyes. And they found themselves lost and empty and oppressed and with no hope for the future. But God, in his mercy and compassion, sent them judges, most of which were not um, great moral men of devotion to God. But nevertheless, God used flawed people to rescue Israel from the hands of its enemies, only to have them repeat the cycle again. And so they continue to do what is right in their eyes rather than God's eyes. And we turn the corner into 1 Samuel. What you see and what we've seen is that God is secretly working in the everyday lives of ordinary people to do an ex extraordinary thing. He is quietly, subtly, subversively moving the history of Israel forward with his plan of uniting uh, uh, all of Israel as one nation under a king. And as 1 Samuel opens, we see how God does away with an old corrupt priesthood to establish a new godly priesthood, and Samuel was that priest, the man who this book is named after. In fact, Samuel is God's choice for priest and for prophet and for judge. He's the last of the judges. So chapters 1 through 8 were about the rise of the kingmaker. The kingmaker, Samuel, his main job was to anoint Israel's first king. But the problem, though, was Israel wasn't quite ready for God's king. God's choice for the king would be that the king of Israel would not be like the king, kings of other nations. The king of Israel would be a man who would actually rule under the authority of God's word. He wouldn't be a law unto himself. He would be subject to God's word. But Israel was like uh, an impatient child, and the people demanded that Samuel give them a king so they would be like other nations, just the opposite of what God wanted for them, because God had set, set Israel aside to be his own special people. Uh, he had set them apart for himself, so they would not be like the other nations. So in rejecting Yahweh as king, they were also turning their backs on their unique identity as God's chosen people. And Samuel gave them fair warning. He said, if you go down this road you demand a king, this is what your king's going to be like, it's not going to go well for you, and they just stomped their feet and cried harder, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king, and so God says, okay, go ahead, give them the king that they want, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me as their king. So now we're moving from the rise of the kingmaker in chapters 1 through 8 to the rise of the king in chapters, one, uh, chapters 9 through 11. Now, Last week, Matt Rexford did a great job unpacking chapter 9 and the first part of chapter 10. And uh, it's a story, the whole story is a, has lots of layers of meaning and uh, has a great purpose. And he had a twofold idea that I want to just review for you really quickly. 
uh, Matt's two points were, first, God is sovereign over all things, so praise Him for His providence. And I love the quote from Dale Ralph Davis defining pro- uh, providence that he showed us last week. I'm going to put it up again. Providence is the wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way that Yahweh has of ruling His world and sustaining His people, and His doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the common stuff of our lives or even the bias of our wills. That's such a great definition. He's doing it just in the common everyday stuff of life. And then Matt's second point was God is always working, so be patient with His plan, and we talked a lot about that. But uh, both of these ideas are embedded in the storyline, and they are literally life-transforming truths if we take them to heart. Now, this week, I want to go back uh, to chapter 9 and carry a couple of other ideas forward. And one of those ideas, what I would call the big wow idea, is that even though God's people rejected him as king, and even though God is disappointed and even uh, angry with him over that decision, he is still merciful and gracious. He continues uh, to work with his people and his choice for their king giving the king the best possible start. Now, by the way, do you know that about God? That no matter how, how, how you might have uh, failed him, uh, no matter how far you might have wandered away from God, n- no, no matter what you said or what you've done or what you didn't do that you should have done, God is a God of second chances. He's a God of second chances and third chances and fourth and 77 times seven, 70 times seven chances. And that's called grace, and it's available for the asking. And what we're going to see in these chapters is how God chooses Saul to be the ruler and savior of Israel, again, in spite of the fact that, uh, that his very own people have rejected him as king. Now, the, the, the rise of Saul takes place in three movements, and, and we're just going to do kind of like a history lesson walk through a lot of facts, but I think it's going to all come together in the end, so don't give up on me till I get to the very end, all right? So it comes in three movements. First of all, Samuel privately anoints Saul as king, and Samuel wants Saul to know for certain that Yahweh has chosen him as Israel's king. That's in chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 16. Then in in the second movement, Samuel wants the people to see that Yahweh has chosen Saul to be their king, and this is done in a public ceremony, and that's chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. And then third, after a great victory in battle with Saul leading the way, Samuel leads the people in a time of worship and renewal, and all the people acknowledge before the Lord that Saul is king. It's kind of a formal inauguration. That's in chapter 11. So the rise of the king comes in three movements. All this is in your uh, notes, uh, sermon notes online or on our app, but a private anointing, a public ceremony, formal inauguration. So let's, we're going to walk through each one of these. Again, Matt did. Didn't Matt do a great job last week? I mean, yeah, let's just give him a hand. Uh, he's, he's good at about everything that he does. I remember years ago, uh, I'd been playing tennis uh, for years, played twice a week, singles on Monday night, doubles on Thursday night. Matt takes up the game of tennis. He's been playing about three months. We go out, and I go, oh, yeah, I'll hit with you. I'll teach you some stuff, I thought. I get out there, and playing against Matt is like playing against a human backboard. Like, no matter what I hit to him, he could return, and he beat me. So I quit tennis after that and uh, <laughs> just sad and rejected what uh, I was. But uh, anyway, um, I'm, I'm going to go back over some of the stuff that Matt covered last week, but with this big idea in mind, because the big idea running through those three movements is this, that God's king will rule and save God's people under the authority of God's word. God's king will rule and save his people under the authority of God's word. Now, uh, just like the rise of Samuel started in everyday, ordinary home life, um, 
the, the rise of Saul starts the same way. Now, Saul's father, Kish, and I don't know about you, but I, I loved Matt's Kish jokes last week. I mean, they, they asked, they were dad jokes, and it could have been the Kish of death for a sermon, but, <laughs> but Matt pulled it off. Anyway, uh, Saul's father's donkeys went missing, and he sends uh, Saul and his servant out to find them. And it's in this whole lost donkey search that Yahweh providentially guides Saul to Samuel, who just the day before had been told by Yahweh, well, let me read it to you, chapter 9, verse 16, about this time tomorrow, Yahweh says to Samuel, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him to be the ruler of my people, Israel, and he will save them from the Philistines, for I've looked down on my people in mercy, and I've heard their cry. So God's king will what? Rule and save. And here's what I, what, what I mentioned earlier about this big wow idea. Yahweh looks down on this rebellious, God-rejecting people, and he's hurt, and he's angry with them, but he still reaches out to them in mercy. Wow. Wow. Anyway, God providentially arranges this whole mundane donkey search to have Saul find Samuel, and Samuel tells Saul in verse 20 of chapter 9, don't worry about the donkeys that were lost three days ago. They've been found. I'm here to tell you that you and your family are the focus of Israel's hope, which blows Saul's mind. He doesn't have a category for this. I mean, he's from the most despised tribe in Israel, from the least family in that tribe. And he's saying, why are you talking to me like this? So Samuel convinces Saul to stay the night. He gives him the royal treatment, the best food, best place to sleep. Again, Saul can't make any sense of any of this. And they get up the next morning, they go out to the edge of town, and Samuel sends the servant away, and he tells Saul, I have received a special message from God for you. And uh, Samuel takes a flask, flask of oil, pours it over Saul's head. This is the private anointing. He gives him a kiss on the cheek. I know, I'm going to milk this. Uh, I know, and, and the moans get worse as the sermon goes. But anyway, and Samuel says, I'm doing this because Yahweh has chosen you to be the ruler over his chosen people, Israel, which again sends Saul's mind into a tailspin. And so Samuel gives Saul three signs to assure him that the word of Samuel is the word of God, word of Yahweh. And he says in chapter 10, verse 2, now you, just, you can just sit back and just listen as I read, okay? This is from the NLT. When you leave me today, Samuel says, you will see two men beside Rachel's tomb at Zelza on the border of Benjamin. They'll tell you that the donkeys have been found and that your father has stopped worrying about them and now is worried about you. And he's asking people, have you seen my son anywhere? Second sign. When you get to the Oak of Tabor, you will see three men coming towards you who are on their way to worship God at Bethel. One will be bringing three young goats, another will have three loaves of bread, and the third will be carrying a wineskin full of wine. They'll greet you and offer you two loaves which you are to accept. Third sign, when you arrive at Gibeah of God, where the garrison of the Philistines is located, you'll meet a band of prophets coming down from the place of worship, and they'll be playing, very specific, harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre, and they will be prophesying. They'll be speaking forth the word of God. And at that time, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you'll be changed into a different person. After these signs take place, do what, you, what must be done, for God is with you. Then go down to Gilgal ahead of me, and I'll join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings, but you got to wait seven days until I arrive, and, wait for, and you need to be waiting for my instructions. So Saul turned and started to leave, and God gave him a new heart, and all of Samuel's signs were fulfilled on that day. When Saul and his servants arrived at Gibeah, they saw a group of prophets coming towards them, and the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy. And those who heard Saul and they heard about it, they exclaimed, well, kish my grits. Is Saul a prophet? How did the son of Kish become a prophet? And one of those standing there said, can anyone become a prophet, no matter who his father is? So this is the origin of the saying, is even Saul a prophet? So this was a saying that circulated for years after, which would be like us saying, will wonders never cease? 
When Saul had finished prophesying, he went up to the place of worship where, and his uh, uncle said, where have you been? And they said, well, we're looking for donkeys, but we couldn't find them. So we went to Samuel to ask him where they were. And his uncle said, well, what did he say? And he said, well, he told us the donkeys had been found, and Saul, and, uh, but Saul didn't tell his uncle what Samuel told him about the kingdom which was probably a wise thing to do because Saul knew the Joseph story and it just wouldn't have been a good idea to tell his family that God was going to make him king and they would all bow down to him. That did not go well for Joseph and it wouldn't have gone well for Saul. That's the first movement. Samuel privately anoints Saul to be king and assures him with three very detailed, unmistakable signs that what Samuel told Saul was in fact the will and the word of Yahweh himself. Second movement. So sometime later, Samuel calls the people of Israel uh, together to meet before the Lord at Mitzpah, a place of worship, and he says, here's what Yahweh has declared, here's what Yahweh has told me to tell you, and Samuel rehearses the backstory. He says, Yahweh rescued you uh, from uh, slavery in Egypt, and to this day, He has rescued you from all the nations that have oppressed you and made your life miserable, and yet you rejected God as your king, and yet in spite of that, God has given you the king that you asked for. So here's how, here's the process by which we're going to select the king, and they do it by casting lots. Now, casting lots was governed by Yahweh himself. In other words, just think it's kind of like rolling the dice, but God's going to make sure that the numbers come up the way God wants them to come up. It was a public, visible way that he made known his will to his people in certain circumstances. And uh, some of you may remember, even in the New Testament, after Judas' betrayal and death, there was only 11 apostles, and so they set out to select a replacement, 12 12th apostle, and they did it by casting lots, and the lot fell to a man named Matthias. Anyway, they went through the casting of lots this way. Uh, First, they cast lots to see which of the 12 tribes of Israel would be the tribe from which the king would come, and that lot fell to Benjamin, which must have made everybody scratch their head, like, how could a king come from Benjamin? And then, within the tribe of Benjamin, they cast lots to determine which family line God had chosen, and the lot fell to Kish's family line. And then, from the sons of Kish, Saul was chosen by lot. Now, I I don't think everybody was present uh, for all this casting of lots thing. This, uh, uh, and Saul wasn't there for sure, um, but he knew what was going on. He knew what was going to happen, and he knew that Samuel had said he was God's choice, but he seems scared to death to take the job because nobody can find the man. I mean, they're out looking, where's Saul? Where is Saul? And they finally, they go, you know, we need to stop and pray about this. Where, God, where's Saul? And God says, oh, he's over hiding in the baggage. So they go and they find their king. He's hiding. And, but they bring him out and he, they, they he, he put him in front of everybody. And his only qualification is that, is that he is tall, dark, and handsome. I mean, it says that he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. The average Israelite in that day would be, was about 5'6", Saul standing 6'3". So when Samuel says there's nobody like him in Israel, that's exactly right. That's why. But, that, but it's his physical appearance is his only qualification. Go figure. And the people like, oh, wow, this is a king. Like, and they begin to chant, long live the king, long live the king. Then verse 25, it says, Then Samuel told the people what the rights and duties of the king were. He wrote them down on a scroll and placed it before the Lord, and then Samuel sent the people and Saul home again. And when Saul returned home to Gibeah, a group of men whose hearts God had touched went with him, but there were some worthless scoundrels who complained, how can this guy save us? And they scorned him and refused to bring him gifts, but Saul ignored them. That's the second movement. Samuel wants the people to see that Yahweh has chosen Saul as king in a public ceremony by casting lots. Then third, chapter 11, after about a month later, the new king is out plowing his father's field. I mean, did you catch it? The new king is plowing his father's field. Makes you wonder, like, well, it would this, like, was there nothing that changed in becoming king? He's just going to go back to farming? 
But that's what he does. And he hears that King Nahash of the Ammonites has led his army against the town of Jabesh-Gilead. And Nahash demands that all the people in the tribes of Gad and Reuben, which are on the east side of Jordan, surrender to him and submit to him. And his gruesome condition is, surrender to me, let me gouge out the right eye of every man, and I'll let you live as my slaves. If not, I'll destroy you, I'll wipe you out completely. And he gives them uh, seven days to make up their mind. Now, in that day, the right eye, I mean, you literally fought by what you saw out of your right eye because you'd hold your shield this way, your sword this way, and you, this eye is looking out behind the shield. So if you don't have this eye, you're not a soldier anymore. So this is his way to make sure that we know uprisings. Um, when Samuel hears this, this was his better call Saul moment. Okay. Uh, and uh, he, he says, chapter 11, verse 6 says, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul. He became very angry. And here's where we see that change in him that uh, Samuel mentioned earlier. Because I can imagine if the old Saul had heard the terrible news about his brothers and sisters on the east side of the Jordan, the old Saul would have just shook his head and said, that's terrible. That is so awful. We need to pray for those people. That's what most people would do. But the new Saul has the Spirit of God come on him. He rallies all Israel behind him, mobilizes 300,000 men of Israel and 30,000 men from Judah. He strategically divides his army into three companies. He launches a surprise attack on the Ammonites, and he slaughters them, and the ones who remain alive scatter to the hills. Well, of course, the people are elated. I mean, they're celebrating. And some of the men who were faithful to Saul say, where are those worthless men who refused to follow Saul? And they wanted to drag those guys out and kill them, publicly execute them. But Saul said, no, no one will be executed today. And he says, for today, Yahweh has rescued Israel. Now, that's good. That is really good. He takes no credit for the win. He acknowledges that Yahweh has given them the victory. That's good. But just to clue you in, this is the high point for Saul, because after this, everything is downhill. So Yahweh rescues his people again, and Samuel says, well, let's go to Gilgal and worship the Lord, and let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom, is what he says. And Gilgal was the place where, after crossing the Jordan River, on their way to fight their first battle at Jericho, Israel camped and worship the Lord, and it's where Joshua set up 12 stones from the Jordan as a way to remind all future generations of all that God had done in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and safely to the edge of the promised land. And Yahweh said to Joshua on that day, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Nahash had said, by gouging out the eye, the right eye, that he would bring reproach and disgrace on Israel. But Yahweh has just rolled away that reproach and a great victory over Nahash. So Samuel leads them to Gilgal to renew the kingdom, meaning to start over with Yahweh as king who will rule and save his people through King Saul. That, so in a formal inauguration before the Lord, they joyfully acclaim Saul as king. And that's the third movement of the story, private anointing, public ceremony, formal inauguration. Now, the question is, why did God go to all this trouble? Like, why did God arrange for Saul to become king in this way? And I can't be, be completely sure, but I take it that tucked away in between the lines of this whole story God wanted Israel, and he wants us to see how both king and people uh, are to conduct themselves in a hostile world. Now, just hang on to that thought, because I know it doesn't necessarily seem to fit right here, but you will see that it does. And how is it that king and people uh, are to conduct themselves in a hostile world? And the, the big idea is they, you do it under the authority 
of God's word, living under the authority of God's word. The king is to rule under the authority of God's word. And this is underscored through all through this story, like in the private anointing in chapter 9, verse 27, he says, uh, Samuel says to Saul, I have come to you and I have a word from the Lord for you. And he tells Saul, Yahweh's chosen him to be the king of Israel and to assure him that this is in fact the word of Yahweh. Samuel gives him three very detailed, specific, unmistakable signs to prove it. But it's not about the signs. The signs uh, are the confirmation that God's word is true and trustworthy. And then in the second movement, Samuel, following God's word, calls the people together in a public ceremony of casting lots. And it's through the casting of lots, sovereignly directed by God, that God's will and God's word are made known to all of Israel and to Saul. Because God has said, Saul's going to be your king. And then in a formal inauguration, Samuel takes the people back to Gilgal, to the place where the story Uh, their story in the promised land began. He takes them to Gilgal and and, and, and they rehearse all that God has done. All this has been written down in, in, in the Torah. And they renew their commitment to Yahweh and to his word. So this story is permeated by God calling Saul and all Israel to live under the authority of his word. But the big reveal is not simply in the things I just mentioned. The big reveal is found in one verse, right smack in the middle of this whole story. It's the one verse I put on the screen, and that verse is chapter 10, verse 25. And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and placed it before the Lord. Now, where do you think that Samuel came up with the rights and duties of kingship? Well, he got them from God's Word. He got them from the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He got them from God's Word, and there's no doubt in my mind that he gets this from Deuteronomy 17, because Deuteronomy 17 is where Yahweh gives guidance about how the king is supposed to stay rooted and not pulled away from wholehearted devotion to Yahweh. Now, think about this. Are these calm, peaceful times in Israel? No. Are these people, are they wholeheartedly devoted to Yahweh and the word of Yahweh? Well, they are right now, but they're wishy-washy. They're fickle. They're easily influenced by the do-whatever-seems-right-to-you culture that's surrounding them. And two weeks ago, I talked about that uh, the, the, the rip currents of the surrounding culture pulling them and pulling us Away from, uh, away from God. And the point here is if, if Saul is going to survive, he has to be grounded in something so much deeper than the wishy-washy currents of people in the culture he's stepping into as king. Now the question is, will he succeed? Unfortunately not. Sadly, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see Saul's life fall apart. So, I mean, what possible hope could he have had What possible hope would any future king have? And the only hope is found in living under the authority of God's word, and that's what God himself tells us in Deuteronomy 17. This is Yahweh's counsel, guidance on how to stay rooted. Now, just listen as I read. This is Deuteronomy 17, 14. You you don't have to turn it. Just listen. This is Moses speaking to the people. And he writes, uh, uh, he says, you are about to enter the land the Lord is giving to you. And when you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like all the other nations around us. I mean, does that sound familiar? If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up large stables of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you can't, don't go back to Egypt for anything. And then the king must not take many wives for himself, like the kings of other nations, because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. 
And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. So there are the three temptations that face all of us. Power, sex, and money. Horses, military might. Power. Power, sex, and money. The Israelite king is supposed to be totally different from all the other ancient Near Eastern kings. So how on earth is the king supposed to sustain that kind of countercultural lifestyle? How is the Israelite king supposed to swim against the current of the godless cultures of the surrounding nations? Verse 18. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instructions on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. He is to have his own personal copy of God's Torah, God's instruction. Let me show you a scroll. This is a, well, there it was, and there, and then it just disappeared. Poof, there it is again. Um, so this is a scroll, uh, it's like a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah. And you can see by the little lamp and that little oil lamp would only be about this size. So this, this Isaiah scroll is not very big. Uh, it, it's actually pretty small. It's about, about this tall. And, and you can hold it in both hands like this. And so the king was to have his own personal scroll of the Torah, of God's word, for teaching and guidance. And he's to, and he's to write it out meaning he's to be immersed in it and know it like the back of his hand. He's to know it by heart. He's to have it deeply planted in his mind and down into his soul and into his bones, verse 19. And he must always keep the copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord as God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. So the posture of God's king is not the posture of the power-mongering kings of the surrounding nations. The, you, you could imagine the posture of Israel's king like this. Like this. This prayerful, humble posture of seeking guidance. What is Yahweh asking of me? What does Yahweh want me to do today? This is the posture of seeking after Yahweh's will, Yahweh's guidance through God's word. And look at the effect, verse 20. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he's above his fellow citizens. The scriptures tell us the grand story of what God is up to to redeem and to restore and to rescue and to heal his people. The scriptures tell us the story of the gospel. And my story is not at the center. Your story is not at the center. God is at the center of God's story. He's the main character. I'm a bit player in his story. And, and, and so what Deuteronomy tells us is this, by, by immersing yourself in God's word, it creates a, a humble spirit. What else? It, it will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest of ways. And it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. So immersing yourself in God's word helps you navigate the pull of people and culture who will be calling to you saying, come this way, do things this way, do things like us. Our way is a better way than God's way. But God's word keeps you steady, keeps you grounded in something so much, so much deeper, so much more solid than the swift rip currents of a godless do-whatever-seems-right-to-you culture. This is the posture. This is the posture. And this is living and ruling under the authority of God's word. It's the only way to survive against the currents of life and culture. Like, like man, I wish the Bible was relevant, don't you? <laughs> I mean, these, these, these are much more than ancient stories. They're your family history. They show you how not to be pulled under, not to be pulled away from the life that Jesus died to make possible for you. 
And I hear you. I, I mean, I hear you. You're saying, oh, I get it. Oh, this is one of those read your Bible and pray sermons. Like, you know, you got to keep the baby Jesus happy, so read your Bible and pray every day. Well, you can see it that way if you want, but, but, but in my mind, what this story is painting is much more profound than that. What it's saying is, is that the only way to survive in this world, the only way to stay connected to the source of life, is to immerse yourself in the story of scriptures. The only way to survive, the only way to stay connected is to immerse yourself in the story of scriptures, to see the story of the scriptures as the story that you're living in and living out. And it's, it's the only way to survive is to have consistent rhythms and patterns of life that keep you rooted and grounded in the gospel. And if you don't, you'll be swept away. Whether you've been following Christ a month or 10 years or 30 years, you'll be carried away if you don't have some kind of regular pattern in your life to keep you rooted and grounded in the gospel. It's just the way life in a godless world is, constantly pulling us towards it and away from God. And it won't do you any good uh, to to be following Jesus and you get down the road and you go, I didn't know that being a Christian was going to be this hard. I didn't know that this would actually call me to sacrifice my comfort and make really difficult difficult decisions. I didn't know I I, I would have to live so differently uh, from everybody else. But this is what the Christian life is about. It's hard. It's challenging. To follow Jesus is countercultural. Following Jesus is about swimming against the currents of culture. And if you, if we, don't have some kind of pattern to root ourselves in, something deeper than the day-to-day of our lives, we'll be pulled under. We have something here called our CBR journal, and we're reading through the Bible. The whole church reads through the Bible uh, every year, and we're actually reading about the story of Scripture and selected books of the Bible. And that could become for you like it is for a lot of us, it could become a regular pattern and rhythm for you. And I encourage you to check that out at the Welcome Center or the Next Step table. Now, this past week, I had the privilege of being in a Zoom call with 12 pastors who are associated with one of our new mission partners, a guy named Endar Sin. And this is the 12 pastors. You can see I'm up there on the top there taking a picture of the screen. And... uh, these pastors are, are in Trinidad, Bhutan, Kenya, Lib- uh, Liberia, and they are faithfully devoted to preaching and teaching and disciple-making and church planting and ministering and serving uh, basically the poorest of the poor people in their area. And if you heard them talk, you, like me, would get tears in your eyes when you hear of their commitment to follow Jesus and their love for the poor, oppressed people they served. Now, Indar asked me if I would do a devotion for them, which I never know quite what to do in a devotion. Like, I got 15 minutes, and I got this much knowledge. You know, like, how do I? I don't know what to do. So I prayed and prayed and prayed, and I sensed the Spirit leading me to pose a question to them. I told them I'm 68 years old, and I've been in ministry for 40 years, 50 if you count all the way back to my summer youth pastor jobs. But I told them that one of the most important questions that men in ministry need to think about and to ask and to wrestle with is, how is it possible to sustain lifelong fruitful ministry? And just like me, they all knew men who started well in ministry, but when ministry became harder than they thought, or when something other than ministry seemed more important to them than what God had called them to do, they gave up. Or they gave in and they dropped out. And, uh, of course, it's only by the grace of God that any of us can walk closely with Jesus for a lifetime. And there are many answers, several different answers to that question, which they want me to come back and talk about the next answer to the question. And I've been thinking a lot about this anyway. So, um, but I, I turn to what I consider to be bedrock. And so I turned to John 15 and I read these verses. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, 
ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And I told them that how these verses most definitely apply to every believer personally, which we're going to make that application in a minute. I wanted them to understand that the original context was that Jesus is instructing his disciples, men who would carry his mission and ministry forward in the world, Jesus was teaching them right here how to sustain lifelong fruitful ministry. And it dawned on me as I was preparing this message, this is essentially the same thing that God told the kings of Israel, that, that in order to survive in this world and not be pulled under by cultural magnetism, you, 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 you've got to abide in God's word. You've got to be immersed in God's word. You've got to know the word of Yahweh in your experience, not just factually. And Jesus links everything he says here in John 15 to his word. He says, abide in my word, keep my commandments, do what I say. And, 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 and he says, your ministry life will be fruitful, verse 5. Your prayer life will be fruitful, verse 7. And you will experience the Father's love in very real, tangible ways, verse 10. Abiding in Jesus, staying connected to the life-giving story of Jesus is being rooted in and immersing yourself in God's Word. But then I told them that I wanted to um, illustrate the idea behind the vine and the branches in a slightly different way. Now, I'm a visual person, so I said another way to think about abiding in Jesus and His Word is to think of the Christian life uh, like a garden hose, like a water hose. This water hose, for it to be effective, it has to be connected to the main water line, and you turn the spigot on, and uh, water flows through the hose, through the hose, and it sprays whoever you are aiming it at, right? We've all had, had that done to us by kids who help us with car washes and that kind of thing. But anyway, so in a very real sense, because God has connected us to the main water line through faith in Christ, the same is true for us. And it is through the Word of God revealing to us the presence of God through the person of Jesus, the living Word, uh, that we experience the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and the very life of God Himself. Jesus has made the connection. He's done that for us. I can't do it for myself. No amount of good that I do can make that connection. He died, rose again, ascended back into heaven as the king of heaven, and he's, uh, he's, he's connected me through faith. John's gospel calls this, uh, uh, Jesus calls this the living water, which comes to us through the agency of word and spirit. But here's the problem. When you buy into Satan's cultural lies, when you opt for doing whatever seems right to you, you do this to the hose. Now, what happens if I do this to my garden hose? It stops. The water, the, the, the water stops. Right. Ignoring what God says about how life is to be lived under his royal authority stops the flow of life-giving water, the water of the Spirit, into your life. It's quenching the Spirit. You're still connected, but sin in your life crimps the hose that brings you the water and sin, whatever it is, and what you say and what you do and how you think, sin is essentially doing what's right in your eyes instead of in what's right in God's eyes. Sin is doing whatever you think is right. Sin is doing whatever the cultural says is your right. Sin will keep you from experiencing the life that Jesus died to give you. When you give yourself to find sexual satisfaction outside marriage, meaning not waiting for marriage, or going outside your marriage, or being addicted to porn, this is what happens. Whenever 
your career or a relationship become, becomes the dominant thing in your life, more important to you than God, this is what happens. And, and it's, isn't it true, like it, most of us, it just doesn't go like this. Most of it, the, the hose starts, starts to bend and it kind of slowly comes until the water is cut off. When you give yourself to drugs or alcohol or all-consuming hobbies or the pursuit of having more and more and more and more, this is what happens. When being in control means everything to you, being in control of where I'm going, what, I'm, what, what I want to happen, what I want people to do for me, what I want God to do for me. When you want so bad to control everything and everybody, this is what happens. When you believe the cultural lies that deceive you into thinking you can create an identity for yourself apart from how God made you to be in order to feel good about yourself, this is what happens. When you give in to the devil's whispers, when he says, really, seriously, do you think, do you, do you, do you really think that God wants you to be unhappy? I mean, do you really think God cares how you define yourself? Do you really think that that lifestyle is off limits? Do you really think that that's a big deal to God? That's what happens. Or when you try to find an identity on social media and you're like, please like me, please like me, more likes, more likes, more likes. I said, there's no life there. There's no life in drugs. There's no life in alcohol. There's no life in hooking up. There's no life in being liked in social media and having, being addicted to that. There's no life in porn. There's no life in pouring everything you've got into your job or to your looks. There's no life in, in trying to control everything and everybody. There's no life in any of that. And it cuts off the flow of life that God wants you to enjoy in a relationship with him. And some of you, I think, are here today and, and, and maybe you're listening online, and what you need to do is this. Just take your hand off and let go of that sin or whatever it is that is cutting off the flow of the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the life of God that he wants you to enjoy. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Here's the big wow. All you have to do is let go of that sin. You tell God, yeah, I've been living life my way. You confess it. You repent of it. And that thing in your life that's become more important to you than God, you let it go. You let it go, and you receive God's grace and his forgiveness, and you start over. It's called grace, and it's available for anybody who asks for it. You start over by renewing your commitment to the kingship of Jesus. You start over by putting yourself under the authority of God's word. And you drive a stake in the ground. And you, and you take a stand that says, by God's grace, by God's grace, I believe that whatever God says is true. Whatever God says is right. Whatever Jesus tells me to do, I'll do. I might not understand it now, but I am going to put myself under the authority of his word. And by God's grace, when you do that, leaning into God's grace, by God's grace, the life-giving forgiveness, the life-giving love and grace of God flow into your life and out of your life and you just spray everybody around you with his love and his grace and his mercy. You bring the water of life to them. And in that way, by God's grace, you'll be better equipped, better prepared to resist the pull of the culture. Would you bow your head? I have to believe that in a room like this or in, in the rooms that you're listening or watching online, I have to believe that if you know Christ, 
and you've, you've crimped that water hose, there's some known sin in your life, there's something that God's Holy Spirit's been niggling you with, nudging you with, saying, let go, let it go, let it go. I have to believe that there's people here who the Holy Spirit has spoken to today and you're ready to let go. By God's grace and by his spirit, you're ready to say, okay, all right, I'm done. I'm done with that. And you're ready to renew your commitment to King Jesus. Some sin in your life that you've been holding on to, that you're, let, you're confessing and letting it go today. As a sign that you have let go, would you just raise your hand and keep it up? Yes, see that hand, that hand, that hand, that hand, that hand, that hand, that hand. Yes, over here, yep, yep, all over the room. Just being honest, yeah, back here in the back. How about over here? Yes, see you, see you, yes, 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 yes. Yep, right here, right there. You're saying, by raising your hand, God, I'm letting go of that, that thing that has entangled me, that thing that's quenched your spirit, that thing that has pulled me down, pulled me under. I'm letting it go today. Anybody else? Yep, see it? Yep, see it? Yes. 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 It's just, this is, nobody's looking around. It's just me and you and God. But this is the way you're saying, I'm done. By God's grace, I'll put myself back under the authority of his word. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for its encouraging power, its comforting power, its convicting power. And I thank you that, Holy Spirit, that you've worked in people's lives this morning to bring them to a point where they say, I, I, I want my hose to be free-flowing. I, I don't want my life to be burdened by this sin anymore, this thing in my life that's become more important to me than you. There's all of these hands that have been raised in this service and in the other auditorium and online in, in, in both hours. God, I pray for each person who raised their hand. And I pray that you would give them, by your grace, the strength to turn away from whatever that thing is and to turn to you. I pray that you would give them grace to renew their commitment to Jesus and that you would give them a new heart and that you would make them into a new person. Even though they have been given a new heart because they've trusted you as Savior, even though they are a new person, a new creature in Christ, renew that newness. And let them know that by giving them a taste of grace. Father, thank you for working in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.